I always tell people I'm not in the business to say that money doesn't matter because money does matter and it's not the only thing that matters. So I say wealth is three T's. It's your time, it's your talent, and it's your treasure, which is money, right? So there are two other things that have nothing to do with money that you can contribute and make a difference, right? Like if you are barely getting by, you can still volunteer your time. You can still volunteer your talent. And I guarantee that you will find that when you do that, something will come back to you, right? Like it's this universal law of giving and receiving. When you give, something comes back to you. That's just the natural way of the universe, God, what, what, whoever you subscribe to. Like that's just how it works. Today on the third place, we're going to talk about money. And probably just now, some kind of emotion welled up inside you. <laughs> if you don't have enough, how do you have more? If you do have enough, is enough enough? Or how much is enough? We, most of us have this mindset of scarcity. Obviously, being an emotional topic, money can also be difficult to talk about. But uh, today we invite AJ Berkeley to the third place. She joins us to talk through our emotions around money and what she calls wealth consciousness. AJ is the founder of My Wealth Conscious Coach and spent over 15 years as an executive in the wealth management industry with J.P. Morgan Chase, Wells Fargo, and MUFG Union Bank. She is passionate about helping women across the globe transform their financial lives and command their true worth in the workplace and the world. We welcome you to explore the third place with us. It is an invitation to the gray space, a space where deeper connections are fostered through challenging, challenging empowering, empowering, and engaging dialogue. You will walk away with a deeper understanding of self, equipped to engage with others in life's complex conversations. Thank you for listening. We invite you in to the third place. AJ, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Today we get to talk about something that can invoke so many emotions and a topic that can feel awkward, I'd say, for many. Uh, we get to talk about money and the emotions that come up with money. So before we get into that, though, I really want to start with what drew you into this world of finance? Well, I always say it happened by accident, but I stayed by choice. When I was just graduating from college, I followed my then serious boyfriend, right? Because follow love uh, to a very small town in Arizona. And it was a matter of either working at Home Depot or the local bank, which was bank one at the time. And mm -hmm. I just remember going in and saying, you know, I don't have much banking experience, but I'm great with people. I'm a fast learner. And that was now almost 17 years ago. I had started off as a licensed banker, which meant I was a generalist to all banking things. Plus, I got my securities licenses. And I spent the last 10 years leading and managing financial advisors. So really full circle going all the way from being right the first person that people would come and see if they had questions about their bank account or if they were looking to buy a home and needed a mortgage to 
actually being the person setting the strategy for the investment teams up to about 160 people. Wow. I think that that's so important to have been able to be a part of all of the the life cycle because to me, at least, like when I was really running, you know, like a grocery store, it was very telling when I didn't know something about some, you know, that that translates so much when you can't have the empathy for the customer experience or for the staff experience or management experience. So it's it seems like that was probably pretty pivotal so that you could really have that empathy throughout. Yeah, it kept me grounded, right? Like I think at the end of the day, the financial industry has a bad reputation, right? For becoming more sales. Like I love the stories I used to hear of, right? The older clients who would come in and say, I remember we used to shake hands and that was a business deal. And now of course, everything is automated. Almost everything is done over, right? Like the internet, you can invest it. Like in basically anything you want on your own versus having to go through a person to be your intermediary. So I just think it's so important that human connection really is what makes the financial industry work. And obviously, now that it's becoming more decentralized, it'll be interesting to see what happens. Totally. I think to your point too, money is such a sensitive topic. I mean, when Mary was just now saying like, hey, we're going to talk about money. I heard this like collective like, yay, let's do it. This is going to be easy, right? Like, kind of a joking voice in my head. But you know, it is so emotional because it's so drawn to our work. It feels if we're good with money, that means we have money that maybe people want to ask us to borrow money. If we're not good with money, then that feels very personal too, because we feel maybe like a failure or, you know, a lot of emotions immediately get attached to this. And I, I know for me, like, there's pieces of my life where a couple small mistakes really snowballed into big financial issues. Now I have, you know, great credit and all of that, but it, it took some time to rebuild and, and I can feel empathy for kind of all stages of money. What was your experience with money prior to the banking industry? Did you think about it often? Did you have personal kind of attachments to it? What was your background before the bank? Well, I tell everyone that I was meant to be in this industry. I remember being a kid and loving to have like lemonade stands and yard sales. So I've always been very comfortable with money in the sense of owning it, having it, letting it go away, having it come back. So I right, I teach a lot of my clients about this idea of wealth consciousness, which means right, you have to give money to get money, which sometimes feels counterintuitive. But money's always been a very strong part of my story. So my father passed away when I was a baby, when I was about one years old. And my mother is Brazilian and came from, right, like your traditional Brazilian family living in poverty. So she had no clue what to do with the money. And she went to back then, right, this is the early 80s, because you had to go through someone to get invested. And Unfortunately, the people gave her bad advice, so she lost a lot of the money over the years. And mm -hmm. so I just always kept that shame, honestly, and that guilt, I think, that she felt for having made a bad decision. Like you said, David, we've all made bad decisions around money in the past, but this one felt so monumental to her, and it still comes up even today. But I was always curious about like, how do you work through those emotions? Because if you carry those emotions throughout your life, it's just right that extra energy, that extra 
Right. Like unnecessary inner dialogue, right? Like that's ultimately what it becomes is an inner dialogue and you mean it means something about you, right? So for my mother, it meant it, it was a big worth game, right? Like I, I wasn't smart enough to make the right investment decision. And then that always translates now when she makes money decisions, like she'll still call me and be like, am I doing the right thing? I don't feel comfortable about it. And I'm like, mom, it's it's in a bank account. You're okay. But she constantly needs that reassurance. And so my biggest quest over these past almost 20 years now has just been, what is the emotional side of wealth? What's the emotional side of money that people actually aren't talking about and frankly don't want to talk about sometimes? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that it's familiar to me to sort of segregate the two. You know, it's like, yeah, emotions can't be in bed with money and vice versa that like, but in actuality, it's like the total opposite that we should be addressing everything that we've brought from generations past or those things that are tied to it as a part of the conversation so that we can make sound decisions for ourselves. And it sounds like you really do bring emotions into the work that you do with money. And is that right? A hundred percent. Yeah. So it's a very healing experience to go through the programs and the coaching and consulting that I do. It's, I get, I often get feedback that it's very refreshing to allow what's been hidden, what's been tucked away for potentially, like you said, decades. And sometimes it's not even their guilt or their fear or their shame. It's been passed down from their parents, right? There's methodology through the Strozzi Institute called the Sites of Shaping that I refer to. And it's this idea, right, that there's social norms, there's all of these things that are at play when it comes to money. So to think that us as individuals would have a perfect relationship with money, it's just not possible, right? Like it's something that actually everyone has to work through. And that's what I think the biggest myth is right there is most people think, oh, well, the wealthy or like they don't have any problems. And the reality is, is they're just normal people like me and you. They just happen to have money, but they have issues and they have the same doubts and fears that a person with no money has because they're at the end of the day, we're all human. Well, and I mean, I think that you're right. You can't separate the human from money and from work. Like I'm imagining, I know the times when I would be stressed out about money. I was stressed out in every phase of my life. I would be stressed out at work because there's this thing that was always in the back of my mind that would bring shame or whatever. And again, even today, like there's some relief, but there's still this like constant voice in the background. Like, is everything okay? Are we sure it's okay? And you can't separate the two. And today, Mary and I interviewed a billionaire and it was pretty cool because he was just a human being that had a big bank account and He's like, I wish people would see me as just Jim. Like, yep. no, yeah. I can't go to lunch with and hang out with people because they're talking to my wallet instead of Jim. Yes. Yeah. He's like, you know, do you want to go to lunch with me is so much more loaded, right? Yes. But it's just a difference of zeros, really. I mean, like, you know, you've said shame, you've said guilt. Like, what are some of the common storylines and associated emotions that you've seen over the years? Yeah, I would say the most common is I'm not good enough, right? So therefore, I'm not worthy. There's also a bit of imposter syndrome, right? Like a lot of the women who find me, they they grew up very similar to me where their families were honest working people and 
either they went to college or they started something and it took off. And so all of a sudden they have, they have wealth and they weren't taught how to deal with it. Right. So there's, that's that hiding, right? Like the hiding behind, they almost don't want people to know that they have money or they're embarrassed that they're, they are, that they're successful, but yet don't have a handle on their money. Right. And the truth is, is no one's ever taught how to deal with money. It's not like we took a class in elementary school, junior high, high school, college, right? I know people who have MBAs and they struggle with money because it's not a topic that's discussed regularly, whether that's in the household, even to education. And so there just tends to be a lot of avoidance and procrastination as well of I'll get to that and almost out of sight, out of mind, which we all know whenever that mentality comes up, that's it's unhealthy, Right. So my goal is to help my clients create a healthy balance and a healthy relationship with money. Mm, It's interesting that you brought up the out of sight, out of mind. I remember one of the things that I consciously chose to do when I was in college and no one even told me this, but I'm sure it's maybe a good practice, but I would be checking my bank account multiple times a day just to like really be tuned into what I did or did not have. It took me years that I was having anxiety every single time I was logging in. But in order to get over that, I had to force myself to do repetition. And still to this day, like it's one of the first things I do when I wake up as I log in, even if nothing's changed. I don't know. It's a, it's an interesting thing, but it is the total opposite on the pendulum of out of sight, out of mind. Yeah. I say there's three primary money personalities. There's the spender, right? Like that's typically the person who doesn't want to look at the accounts because they don't want to come to reality with what they're spending. There's the saver who actually has a very unhealthy relationship with almost hoarding. So they are looking too often. They are too almost obsessed with the balance of their accounts when the reality is, is nothing changes realistically on a daily basis. And then you have what's called a planner who is constantly always looking forward and they're not really enjoying the now. So these people mm. tend to have everything planned out to the T and then they don't feel satisfaction because they're never fully able to really enjoy the fruits of their labor, right? Because we all do work for a living, right? It shouldn't be our lives, but there's always this out of balance that tends to happen. And that's, you know, that's the work that I love to do with my clients is around how do we get you back into harmony, right? Not only with the way that you think about money, but the way you're using it. David, which one are you? So I'm the spender. (laughs) (laughs) I would have said that. that. Yeah, yeah, but and that's what I was going to say, because my wife's the saver. And we've realized how both have tremendous value, right? So like, I think one of the first things we did in in our marriage was, you know, take like a, a financial course, and that's where even that language kind of came up for the first time and how important they were, you know, like to save and save and save. You never get to live in the moment, kind of like the planner. And then there's this number that is like this, you know, in some ways money is just this made up thing. Sometimes it feels like it's just this number that's in some digital format that you can check on your phone. Obviously it empowers you to do things, but you know, so here's this person who's saving, but not enjoying life. And then the spender who's spends to enjoy the present moment, but then has nothing when the time is needed. So the balance of the two just seems like they're really healthy or the balance of the three seem like they're really healthy. 
Well, and that's what I teach is you want to have all three, right? Like Mm -hmm. we have a primary, but there's, we want to learn how to adopt the mindsets of all three because they're all necessary because there's very positive things to being a spender. So spenders tend to take more risk. They're going to be the person that's willing to invest in the market. They're going to be the ones that are willing to buy rental properties to, right? So there's, there's a lot of positives to all of those mindsets. It's just when you rely on just that one for too long and then you right. take it to a whole new, another level where emotion gets created, right? Cause you're triggered and you start emotionally reacting. That's where the danger starts to happen. Yeah. And when it even shows up in our work, like I am the risk taker, I'm an entrepreneur, you know, let's just figure it out. And then my wife is a teacher. One, she's good at it. But two, it's like, oh, I like the idea that there's the same paycheck week in, week out, and mm-hmm. I don't have to worry about it. It just goes in the account. Mm-hmm. So even our professions, mm-hmm. the spender saver mentality has influenced in part our work paths. Have you seen you know, is this a pattern? I feel like I would guess that it was just because I've witnessed it where those that grew up with extreme wealth then maybe go on the total opposite extreme end where they're really frugal as a result or like when you were, you grew up with no wealth or maybe poverty that, you know, that probably brings in, there's more control that maybe you're working with because there's, it's, there's fear-based from that, I'm just wondering are there are there some themes when it comes to those extremes of the spectrum too? Well, the good news is a scarcity mentality is the majority, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? We live in a scarcity collective mindset, right? There's not enough money. There's you know you got to go get yours. The American dream is right to have everything that you want, right? It doesn't take into consideration your neighbors, your family, your community, the world. And so there's, you know, there's, I would say that it really doesn't depend on how you grew up in the sense of whether you do or don't have money. It's how the people around you interacted with the lack of money or with the excess of money. Right. So I have some clients who grew up, you know, their parents were country club members, executives, and they feel guilty about having money. So they actually spend it so they don't have money, right? So it's, that's that's how this mindset works is when you believe something it actually becomes reality it because you tell yourself so they their spending goes out of control because they feel guilty that they have money and so they just let it go or you have the person who grew up with nothing who has to grasp so tight onto things that they have saved ridiculous amounts of money but yet they still have this overwhelming fear that it's all going to go away so it really depends on the environment in which these we've all grown up in, right? And the people who were around you, what, you know, whether that's your parents or even some of your close community, right? You may have been involved in a church where, yeah, you were all wealthy, but you were the least of the wealthiest of the group, right? Like I've got clients who are like, I grew up in a beautiful house, but we drank powdered milk because my parents were trying to keep up with the Jones. Right. It becomes a very complex situation, And that's why um, the work is so, it's so meaningful. And I tell people, right, like I'm in the business of financial transformation. So a lot of people are like, what's wealth consciousness? Well, it's having a completely different transformation with your money, different than financial coaching, which helps you get a budget, 
right? Or it helps you save for a house. Of course, I can help my clients do all of that. And I take it to the next level so that they don't get back into the same patterns that they've had in the past. That's amazing. Does this mean that you're really encouraging them to be far more transparent with themselves and with others when to, when it comes to to this? Because I feel like I was raised um, being told, you know, you don't ask people about their money. Like, that's rude. It, especially if they have more money. You definitely don't ask if they have more money. But if they don't, it was more PC or it was okay. I don't know. I just like, that was one of my things that I that was filtering. And I'm like, is that like, what are your thoughts or your feelings on that? Do you think that we should actually do the opposite? Should we be more transparent or is yeah, that I not think, a piece of I it? I think specifically women need to get more comfortable talking about money because men candidly don't have a problem. Some do, right? But I'd say collectively, right, as a gender, men are very comfortable talking about, like it's it's like they're casual talk. Um, being in an industry that's male-dominated, I learned very quickly there's nothing rude about saying, I made this amount of money yesterday or, right, like I brought in this client and X, Y, Z versus women tend to very much be like, that's rude. It's not polite, right? It's not ladylike. And so a lot of the work I do is in groups and people are like, you're crazy. Why? You know, these women have been hiding all this time and now you're asking them to talk about money in a group. But what they find is that they're not alone because that's actually why they don't talk about it is because they're shamed or there's guilt or there's doubt or worry. So they put themselves, they isolate themselves. And so the group experience allows them to see, oh, there's actually other people out there in the exact same, right? They're having the same experience. Maybe their circumstance is different, but they're still in the experience of worry or they're still in the experience of anxiety. And that brings these women together. So what I find is, is we don't typically get into the nitty gritty details, right? Like, because that's really not what the work is about. And David, you said it earlier, right? Like money is just kind of numbers. That's really not what the work is about when it comes to money. It's how do I interact with it and with others in a place that makes me feel like I'm contributing in positive ways? Because every single one of these clients that I work with often say, I know I can be doing more. I just don't know where to start. Does it also go on the other end? Are there any like ground rules in this group setting where it's like trying to leave judgment or, you know, any of that at the door so that it can feel safe because I could imagine people would have responses, you know, learned responses too when they are starting to engage in that conversation that you obviously wouldn't want someone to be ill-received. Yeah, you know, I guess I'm shocked. I have never had to have ground rules <laughs> in cool. any of my experiences with my team because and my clients, because I just think that's just who I am, right? Like who I am is I allow people to trust themselves, which in turns allows them to trust others. Because really, that's what we're talking about here, is when someone feels threatened or worried about what other people think, it's because they don't trust themselves. It has nothing to do with the person across the table. And so I, I guess in a lot of ways, I'm grateful I haven't ran into a situation today, knock on wood, where I've had to intervene and say, hey, like this is a no judgment zone. I think the fact that most of these women acknowledge that they all had the courage to actually say yes to even doing the program or the service is like a common 
denominator. And so there's this beautiful community that gets created because they all know they're in it to do the work together. And it's super powerful because, right, of course, I'm the co- the lead coach or teacher, if you will, but these women learn so much because of the other women sharing their experience, right? And so we start at the beginning, which when, when I say that is we look at how was money treated in your household? And I think because we go deep so fast, women don't have the chance to say, oh, well, X, Y, Z, right? Like, oh, I'm not sure if I should talk about that because we're talking about things that go deep and we go quick. And so by the end, everyone's pretty much an open book. Yeah. Well, and I love that. What I hear a lot of that is the community building aspect of it. Like when I hear that women are less open, I immediately think, well, that's got to be a factor of the gender gap issues that we have, right? That we don't bring that into the conversation as men in the workforce. Like that's really helpful to know because I think we should be talking about gender gap more. And, you know, can we create the environments where we talk about money more often in the workplace so that we can address issues like gender gap? But also just in that community building, so, so much of what you said too was it's almost like how do we evolve this conversation from an individualism? Like, I, let me get what's mine versus this interconnected version of money. My work affects your work and, and that affects the neighbor down the street and, and this small business owner. And so the community aspect and talking with a group of people in a little bit more of an open environment feels like it immediately makes it all interconnected so much more easily. Is, is that your experiences? Absolutely, David. And you're bringing up two really important things. The first one is I do a lot of work with corporations. So I bring my work into organizations. I just worked with Google, for example. And right, it's an employee engagement. You mentioned it from the beginning. When I'm stressed out about money and work, it, it goes everywhere, right? Like I can't show up fully at a meeting. I can't, right? I may not take a an, a job that I'm overqualified for because I don't think I'm worth that amount of money. So I love being able to take my work into corporate America because that's typically where a lot of this unconsciousness tends to breed is in this these competitive environments. So I work with a lot of organizations to bring this work in. And a lot of people would say, wow, that's kind of an interesting place. But I've again, there's just this common interest and in known that, hey, we're going to be working towards something together. And then what you're actually really speaking to is what I call the levels of wealth consciousness. So at the very bottom of that pyramid is concern, right? And that's where the individual is so concerned in their own stuff that they can't like open their eyes to a bigger picture and allow for right? Like contribution, which is ultimately at the top of the pyramid. And what you'll find is, you know, and you guys mentioned you had spoken to a billionaire earlier, what you'll find with what's common with a lot of those individuals, like Bill Gates is an example, is their entire world is in service, right? Like they are contribution first. Yes, it means that they've acquired wealth through it and they look at how can I be of service? How can I contribute to make like the world a better place or technology a better place or healthcare a better place? And ultimately that's how wealth was created for them. Different than the person that's so worried about what mine is, right? Like that concern, they're so stuck in it 
that they can't actually open their eyes and see what's available to them. And so that's part of the levels of wealth consciousness that I work through with my clients. At the bottom is concern, then it goes to clarity, confidence, compassion, and then contribution. Cool. I was going to ask you about, you know, what it, like, what gets to a point where you can be contributing or feeling like you're making um, an impact in that way with your money. And that it does remind me of, we did an episode on Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? So it's like that that's, these two seem like sisters to each other. They that are they really, sisters. Yes. Yeah. And not by coincidence, right? Because right. it's, I always tell people, I'm not in the business to say that money doesn't matter because money does matter and it's not the only thing that matters. So I say wealth is three three T's. It's your time, it's your talent, and it's your treasure, which is money, right? So there are two other things that have nothing to do with money that you can contribute and make a difference, right? Like if you are barely getting by you can still volunteer your time. You can still volunteer your talent. And I guarantee that you will find that when you do that, something will come back to you, right? Like it's this universal law of giving and receiving. When you give, something comes back to you. That's just the natural way of the universe, God, what, what, whoever you subscribe to. Like that's just how it works. And so I work with women no matter where they're at, right? My clients, no matter where they're at in the spectrum, whether they're just trying to get out of debt to multi-billionaires, like how can you contribute that allows you to see your your way out of your current environment? Because that's typically what happens is people get stuck in that mentality and then they make it their reality for their entire lives. And they don't think, oh, I can actually change this because they're so stuck in it and it's so real for them. So by stepping outside of their mess, as I like to call it, right, their money mess, they have the ability to see, oh, actually, I can give in different ways. And then it leads them to the path that they actually want to be on. Yeah, it's the whole, I mean, you have to spend money to make money, but it could be just just the energy exchange, right? And if you can, when you start to get into a space of generosity, no matter how tangible, whichever method you choose, I've so experienced that too, that there's, it's sort of like you're letting go, like physically, maybe even letting go of money or of your, or your energy. There's a surrendering that ends up like far more rewards from my experience. So I love that you address that energy exchange that can happen there and that you could do that at any stage, no matter how much is in your bank account. Well, and I learned that by visiting my family in Brazil, right? I would say prior to my awakening with wealth consciousness, I would have never thought that was possible. But when I went to visit my family in Brazil, they're living in conditions that you and I would be like, how is this even possible? Right. Like most people would say, oh, my God, they must have been so depressed. They were the happiest people I've ever seen in my life. They love each other. They will give you anything off of their back, even if they have nothing. Right. There's this strong sense of community. They take care of each other. And that's when I'm like, something's wrong. Right. Like and I say something's wrong in me and something was wrong in the collective. I realized I'm like, I've been striving my entire life to live this American dream. And the reality is, is. My Brazilian family has it figured out. They don't have money and they're still happy and they're still thriving and they're still living a good life. And so 
that's what, when my great awakening happened is when I actually experienced poverty for the first time and realized actually, yeah, they don't have money, but they have an abundance of so many other things that I know a lot of people who have a lot of money would like just be thrilled to have. I think you bring up such a great point. And because my awakening was similar, where I went to Belize for the first time and not in the tourist part, but in inside the country, where I felt like I saw poverty for the first time. And, and then I went back uh, again uh, for a couple of years. But the, the following year, I went and I had read a couple more books that just about world wealth and world poverty. So the first year I went, um, it was a farming area and the average income was seven US dollars per day. So I'm just like, this is so poor. But again, to your point, everyone was there was extremely generous, extremely happy. And then when I went the second time, I think for me was when I really had culture shock because by that point I read a book and it said the median wealth in the world was seven US dollars per day, which is what they were making. So it wasn't that I was in a poor part of the world. I was actually in the middle, you know, the middle people of the world live at seven US dollars per day. And it was below then that you start to get into poverty. And then if you go into the inner city, where it's two US dollars per day, and you lack now everything, lack access to education, lack access to healthcare, that's what real poverty is. And, you know, that's definitely where I started to shift my perspectives uh, tremendously around wealth and, and begin the journey of contribution realizing even though I was poor from an American standpoint at that time, I was actually extremely wealthy, but then they were more wealthy in different ways. So that's kind of a plug. I like, it seems so pivotal to your journey. It was pivotal to mine. I, I do think one thing that most Americans should really consider is going to visit outside the U S and seeing what a global perspective really is. Which is not always easy to do even financially, right? right. Which is such a right. good story too. Which but like money to can, can be the most, I think that that story is, is shared when you get to see that, see the joy, see how they measure their abundance. That's been like a lot of my, my mantra and my theme over the, this last year with some crazy financial changes with, after the loss of my dad and then going through that whole side of money that I have been saying, you know, abundance can be measured in more so many ways than just money. And that's really been helpful for me, no doubt. AJ, hearing you talk about Google and this pyramid of wealth consciousness, like, I, I want to tell my whole team about it. Um, I would imagine other small businesses, own, own, whether you're owners or you work in small businesses, would love to learn more. How can people find more about your work and really take the next step of this conversation? Yeah, thanks for asking. Uh, the best place to find me is on Instagram at my wealth conscious coach. And we obviously also have a website, mywealthconsciouscoach.com. And we're, we're in a very interesting place right now of growth, which I'm so grateful for. And we're looking to revamp. So typically I work exclusively with women. And because I want to bring this world work to corporate America, we're actually broadening our options. And so I'm seeing now that that may be something that, right? Like working with women is still always going to be my passion and my wealth conscious coach is going to start opening its doors to the masses. And so I'm really excited about that because again, and you mentioned this, David, is right, like what, there's this very unique opportunity to engage everyone and that's, that's how we're going to make the change, right? Because I'm trying to disrupt the collective mindset of scarcity 
and it's going to take more than just right half of the population. Yeah, I don't think I really registered until you said that, that we're in a, a mindset of scarcity across the board. That was pretty enlightening. I, among like all these amazing things that I've taken notes about with the, the pyramid and your wealth consciousness and everything, I, just such really powerful, brilliant work. And thank you for, for bringing it to the third place. Well, thank you for having me. I love having these conversations and um, it's right. We're all, we're all trying to empower and enlighten others in different ways. So I'm, I'm grateful you gave me the opportunity. Yeah. So is it best to connect with you on a website, on Instagram? Where's, where's the best to connect? Yeah, I'd say Instagram, my wealth conscious coach. Great. Perfect. Thanks, AJ. Thank you. Be well. Third Place Podcast is produced by Podcast Publishing House. If you like what you're hearing, follow us and subscribe at all of your favorite platforms, Apple, Spotify. Also check out the episodes on our website, thirdplacepodcast.com, for additional resources and transcriptions of our episodes. The Third Place is all about continuing the conversation, so make sure you follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Third Place Podcast. There you can check out our weekly co-host Happy Hours on IGTV. And if you like what you're hearing and want to continue to support our work, you can check out our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash third place podcast.